The gospel writers tell us that Jesus entered Jerusalem on the first day of the week, riding on a colt. And as he did that, the people spread out palm branches and they shouted from Psalm 118, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so because the gospel writers record that Jesus entered Jerusalem in that royal fashion on that first day of the week, we traditionally celebrate Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. And we remember that event and we remember the royalty, the kingship of our Lord Jesus And as we reflect on those gospel accounts, we see that Jesus is entering into Jerusalem in a very kingly fashion. And even riding on a colt, which is a humble beast of burden, yet it is very reminiscent of the way that Solomon rode into Jerusalem when he was installed as king after David. And so there's very uh, kingly royal overtones with that, that symbolism of riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. What I would like for us to do this morning in reflecting on the triumphal entry of Christ is I want us to think about the next time that he triumphantly enters. And the next time that he triumphantly enters will be when he returns in glory. And so there will be another triumphant entry, if you will. And Revelation 19 records that for us. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, the Apostle John records for us a vision of the exalted Christ returning in power and glory. He says in Revelation 19, verse 11, I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you that we have this honor to read your holy word today. Thank you for revealing the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his majesty and glory to your servant John on the Isle of Patmos. Thank you that he has recorded this vision for us. And now some 1900 years later, we have the ability to reflect on it and to think about the glory of our King Jesus. So Lord, may these words that we meditate on today, may they lead us to worship our King. To him be glory and praise and honor. 
And we pray this in his name. Amen. As John reveals the Lord Jesus here in Revelation 19, John is drawing from language that he has already used throughout Revelation. And so many of the words and phrases that he uses here to describe the Lord Jesus Christ, he's used earlier in his book. And one of the first things that we see about Jesus, the way that he describes him in verses 11 and 12, is that he is a righteous king. He is a righteous king. As you look at some of the descriptions here in verses 11 and 12, that is kind of an overriding uh, word to describe all of these concepts, righteous. In verse 11, we see that he is riding on a white horse. It's a symbolic of his purity, of his righteousness, of his holiness. And what's interesting is that if we compare this to something that we could have read earlier in John's a book of Revelation, we see that in chapter 6, there is a, a false Christ, if you will, a false ruler who comes in riding on a white horse, imitating, parodying, if you will, the true Christ, the true Lord. But here John reminds us, reveals to us that at some point in time in the future, the Lord Jesus, the true righteous one, will return. And when he comes, he will come to judge in justice and in truth. He says that he is called faithful and true. Faithful and true. Those words, at least in their full meaning, cannot be described of any other human being, can they? No matter how faithful we try to be, ultimately we are not. No matter how truthful or true we attempt to be, ultimately we are not. There's been only one human being in all of history who can truly be called faithful and true. And that is the Lord Jesus. And John, in revealing this about Jesus, is contrasting Jesus' rulership, his kingship, in contrast to the Caesars, to the Roman emperors of his day, who were anything but faithful and true. They were selfish. They were capricious. They were uh, fickle. They were up and down. You had no idea. They They did whatever they felt like doing. If they wanted to go to war, they went to war. If they wanted to have somebody assassinated, they had somebody assassinated. If they wanted to persecute somebody, they persecuted somebody. And throughout much of Revelation, John is revealing to the church that they're about to be persecuted. But in contrast to these emperors who attempt to be all sovereign, he reminds them there is truly one sovereign. And he is, in fact, faithful and true. He is righteous. He says he judges with justice. And when he comes to wage war, he does it with justice. So he does it righteously not out of selfishness or anger or revenge. When the Lord Jesus brings justice, he does it in truth and righteousness. And in this, he is the perfect culmination, fulfillment of what all of the prophets pointed to when they said that one day one would come who would righteously judge and rule over God's people. 
If you read through the prophets, especially Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the major prophets, whenever they talk about a coming ruler, almost without fail, one of the characteristics that they will mention about that coming ruler is that he will be righteous. He'll be just. And in that fashion, will follow in the pattern of David. Even though David was certainly a flawed king, and David was not perfect by any means, yet David became the model in Israel for what a righteous, a just king should be. But when Jesus comes, the son of David, the line of David, he will be even greater than David, won't he? He'll be truly righteous and truly just. And so when he comes, everything that he does will be righteous and true. And verse 12 gives us an insight into how he can do that. It's because his eyes are like blazing fire. And probably the symbolism intended by that is that Jesus, his eyes have penetrating insight to be able to look into the hearts and the minds, the thoughts, the consciences of people so that when he judges, he is not judging based merely on external appearance. He's not judging based on what other people can see. He is judging to the very core of someone's being because he has this infinite, all-knowing perception as the son of God, his eyes as blazing fire. And so he is a righteous king. Sometimes as Americans, we think, and, and maybe we've thought this growing up, and maybe it was even taught us in history or in civics class, but we have this concept as Americans that the greatest form of government ever created is a constitutional republic, like we have here in the United States of America. And while certainly it is a very good form of government, I think we can see that it also has its flaws. And we can see some of those flaws being revealed even now in our country. And the reason why a constitutional republic still has flaws and is not the best form of government is because still flawed human beings have to implement those laws in that constitution. It's going to be flawed. It's not going to be perfect. Biblically, the best form of government is a monarchy, but with a specific king, King Jesus. That is the best form of government because then everything that is done will be done righteously and truly and justly. Our whole culture is talking about justice today, talking about social justice, but they're missing the fact that we as human beings will never be able to achieve justice on our own. We'll never to br bring in world peace on our own. We'll never be able to bring in perfect equality or equity on our own. It's not gonna happen because we are sinful, flawed human beings. The only way to achieve perfect justice is when Jesus comes. And so our best hope as human beings now is to put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ now and seek to live according to his ways now and seek to live in a, and try to live in a just society now by living out his word. But really it can only be just when he comes, the righteous and the faithful king.
So he is a righteous king. But we see in this passage as well that Jesus is described as a majestic king. A majestic king. He says in verse 12 that on his head are many crowns. And one way of understanding this is that this is, again, in contrast to some of the ways that the false prophet and the beast have been described earlier in Revelation. The beast was described as having many heads and many crowns. But here is Jesus, the one perfect son of God, crowned with many crowns, implying that he is better than all of these other heads with crowns. He is the perfect one with a crown on his head. And the multiplicity of crowns is meant to communicate his majesty. His, the infiniteness of his majesty and royalty. He is crowned with many crowns. Why? Because he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Every crown that has ever been invented, every crown that has ever existed, every crown that symbolizes royalty, leadership, authority, honor, belongs to Jesus, doesn't it? All crowns deserve to be laid at his feet. In fact, Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 2 that there's coming a point in time, a day at the coming of Jesus when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. What? Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is the one who deserves all crowns because he is the majestic royal king. And it says that he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. It's a very mysterious thing that John says here. Apparently, John is able to see this name, but maybe not quite make it out or not understand it, understand its significance. And what's interesting about this is that there are already several names of Jesus mentioned in this passage. So he's already been called faithful and true. He's already been in the very next verse. He's going to be called the word of God, it says his name is the word of God. And in verse number 16, it says that he has an, a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So clearly he has multiple names, but apparently this name that he is talking about in verse 12 is unknown except to Jesus himself, or at least is not able to be comprehended by us as finite human beings in the here and now, which points to his, uh, his infiniteness, doesn't it? His, his majesticness and the fact that he is over everything. It really points to his transcendence, that there are elements of the Godhead, there are elements of who God is, who Jesus is, that are beyond our comprehension. He is the majestic one. Verse 13 says that he, he is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. When we read verse 13, our initial inclination when we see that robe dipped in blood is to think of the cross to think of his work on Calvary. And perhaps this is referring to his blood that was shed for us on Calvary. 
And that's a possibility. But in the passage, there's really nothing particular that points us to that element of Christ's work. What is in the passage is the element of warfare. And so maybe a better way of understanding it is that it is symbolic of Christ conquering his enemies, Christ with his people involved in conquering his enemies. And certainly that involved the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, triumphing, triumphing over all powers and principalities, Ephesians says. So it, it denotes his involvement in warfare, but in victorious warfare as the word of God. So he is the righteous king. He is the majestic king. And as I read verse 14, my only thought could go to the fact that he is described as a gracious king. He is gracious because look at the scene that John describes. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. There's so much in that that describes God's people. And the only way that any of that could be used to describe God's people is because of the grace of God. So you think about the fact that in verse 14, it says the armies of heaven were following him. That's a privilege in and of itself, isn't it? To be regarded, to be considered as worthy to be in the army of the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and to follow him in his triumphal entry. Almost kind of like the disciples were accompanying Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey on that first day of the week before Easter his next triumphal entry, he will also have a procession. But it now will be with the glorified, resurrected saints of all the ages who are following him in his train and they are coming with him in glory. And it says that they're riding on white horses dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Who was riding on a white horse at the beginning of the passage? Jesus himself, wasn't he? Now, the armies of heaven, we as God's people, also riding on white horses, certainly not because we deserve it, but because of Christ and his grace has granted us that privilege. And clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Again, certainly not because we deserve it from our own righteousness, but because we've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And so we can come dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. He is a gracious king who has saved us and made us white and clean and given us the privilege of coming with him in glory and reigning with him throughout eternity. And the final picture that John gives in verses 15 and 16 is of a victorious king. A victorious king Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. Quoting from Psalm 2, a messianic royal psalm. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And so verses 15 and 16, the whole image is one, yes, of battle, Yes, of waging war, 
but ultimately of victory, isn't it? It's victory. Jesus will defeat all of his enemies. Now, we're reading this from our perspective, 2021 in American culture. But think about the people, the Christians, that are reading this message from John the very first time, say in 95 or 96 AD, in the midst of the Roman Empire, and on the throne in Rome is an emperor who is bent on persecuting and raining down terror on God's people. And they're going to face persecution and bloodshed, imprisonment, martyrdom for their faith. John's already revealed that. He's written to them about that throughout the whole book of Revelation. They're going to face difficult times because of the, the Roman Empire and their, their antipathy toward believers and their animosity toward God and his followers. Persecution. And there are times probably as a first century Christian living around that turn of the century, 95 to 100 AD, when these terrible Roman emperors were raining down terror on believers, you you probably had the feeling we feel defeated. We feel defeated. We feel beaten down. We feel persecuted. We feel like we've lost. And one of the points of the whole book of Revelation is to remind a persecuted, beaten down people, you have not lost. You have not lost because Christ is victorious. Christ has conquered death. He has conquered the grave. He is the resurrected one. He is the exalted one. He is the majestic, righteous king of the universe. And while you may think the ultimate power in your life is a Caesar who sits on a throne in Rome. He reminds them the ultimate power, the ultimate sovereign is a king who sits on a throne in heaven. And one day is coming again in power and glory. Now, that doesn't mean that they still won't face persecution and imprisonment and perhaps martyrdom. But what it does mean is that they can do that in faith, in endurance, overcoming, using the language of John in Revelation, overcoming, enduring in faith, knowing that in the end, they'll be resurrected from the grave by the resurrected one. And one day they will come with him in glory and they will rule and reign in his kingdom forever and ever. So the image John is giving them is one of victory, not defeat. Let me apply that to our setting just for a moment. As you look around at our politics and the way things are happening and unfolding in our country right now, the winds are certainly not in our favor right now as believers in Christ. To use a a nautical term, the wind is blowing against our sails, the direction that we want to go in following Christ. So we're facing some headwinds. We're facing some friction ahead as believers in Christ. 
and it looks like a lot of people in, in powerful places, in government, in business, wealth, that they're aligning seems as one against people of faith. Here's what I want us to remember. We are not a defeated people. We are not a defeated people. Even if, let me look down the, the, the tunnel 20 years. Even if 20 years from now, for me to get up and preach a message from Leviticus or Romans chapter one against sexual immorality, if that means that I end up in jail for hate speech, I'm still not defeated. I'm still not defeated because Paul and Silas were not defeated in that Philippian jail, were they? They were arrested. They had been beaten. They were not defeated. They were singing praise to the King of Kings because they knew who ruled the universe ultimately. Paul says in Philippians, while he's writing the letter of Philippians, he is in prison for his faith, for the name of Christ. And one of the great themes of Philippians is rejoicing. Rejoicing. And he says, I don't know what's going to happen. I think I'll be released for your good and for the encouragement of your faith. But if I die, I get to be with Christ. For to me to live is Christ, but to die is even better. It's gain. If you are a Christian following the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, there is no such thing as defeat. Even imprisonment, beating, financial ruin, death is not defeat for Christ's people, is it? It's not. It is not defeat. Because here's what Jesus said. I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. One way of understanding that statement, the gates of hell, has to do with the fact that hell or Sheol is the grave. And the gates, the doors, if you will, over the grave cannot contain Christ's church because Christ will bring them out of the grave, won't he? He will resurrect them. He will bring them back into power and glory in a resurrected, glorified body. As Jesus said to his disciples, do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. What's the worst they can do to us as Christians? The worst they can do to us is kill us, right? That's the worst. They cannot touch our eternal soul. They cannot touch our eternal destination with Christ and glory. There is no such thing as defeat for Christ's people. No matter what happens on the dirt of this earth, one day Christ, the victorious King, is coming back again. And he will rule and reign over this world and transform this world into a righteous, glorious kingdom and you and I, who are believers in Christ, will be there with him. 
in glory and majesty. That is something to be hopeful about, isn't it? So quit getting hung up on the news and which way the news is going. Because ultimately, from an eternal perspective, it really does not matter. Follow Jesus. Follow the King of Kings. Put your hope and your faith in him because one day he's coming again. And when he comes, he's coming not in defeat. He's coming in victory. And when he comes, he will have all authority because he will not just be the king. He'll be the king of kings. He'll not just be the Lord. He will be the Lord of lords. The Lord of every sovereign, the Lord of every ruler, the Lord of every authority. He is the Lord over them. And so let's worship him today. In hope, let's look to that day. Let's live today in light of that day, in hope and in victory. Let's worship this servant king who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, but who one day is coming back again as the glorious king on a triumphant white horse in the clouds of heaven. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his life and death and resurrection and ascension to glory. Father, right now, even today, Jesus of Nazareth is the risen, glorious King. He is sitting in heaven on a throne, ruling over the world with all authority in heaven and on earth, having been given to him. Father, help us to live our lives lovingly, believingly, under the authority and lordship of Christ. Father, give us hope and strengthen our faith and cause our eyes to be ever heavenward, looking for the return of our triumphant King. As your servant John wrote at the end of this book, even so come, Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.